Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, let's, let's get to it. Romans chapter 9 is where we left off a couple weeks ago. Verse 19. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Romans 9, verse 19. We're going to read through verse 23. If you're visiting with us today, we've been working through the letter of Romans for the past long while. And I'm going to read verses 19 through 23, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to work through this text. Romans 9, 19 through 23. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. All right. Well, let's pray and pray for me. We're in, I think, the deepest waters in all of Romans and maybe all of the Bible. But even though these waters are deep, I think they're clear. And it's certainly fresh water. It's good water for us to drink and to, to learn and to grow and to be humbled. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would be reoriented in our often faulty view of your power and goodness. And I pray for my friends in this room who do not yet know Jesus pray that you would do what only you can do and that you would give them new life and a new heart and that you would open up their deaf ears and that you would open up their blind eyes so that they can see Jesus. And I pray that you'd do all this for the display of your glory, for the good of your people, and for the salvation of any that don't know you in this room and that may listen to this message in any other way. I pray that you'd do, do it Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. There was a, a hero of mine. He's a, a, a British-English pastor in the late 1700s. His name was Charles Simeon. And he said, when coming to a text, especially texts like this, he says, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think should be there. And that's my task this morning. And the way I want to handle that is we're going to work through verses 19 through 23. And then I think these, quest, these, these verses, this paragraph, lead us to answer, to ask and to answer two questions, which we'll get to at the end. But first, let's work through verses 19 through 23 and try our best to determine what Paul is saying and to understand the point of this passage. Look at verse 19. He says, this is Paul responding to 
an objection that he anticipates from everything that he has said up to this point, in particular in Romans chapter 9. And he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And I think clearly verse 19 is in response to what he has just said in verse 18. So if you have your Bible still open to Romans 8, look up at Romans 9, look at verse 18, where he summarizes after he's been telling us that God will have mercy on whom he, he says he has mercy on, on one and he hardens another. He has mercy. He tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then he uses the example of Pharaoh in Exodus, how he told Pharaoh to let his people go, but he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he couldn't actually obey the command that God gave him, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so Paul concludes in verse 18, so then he, speaking of God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a controversial statement. And Paul, do you see the, the objection that Paul is anticipating? And he, he gets right into it in verse 19. So he's saying, if verse 18 is true, you will say to me then, how can he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And you understand the objection, right? That Paul is dealing with here. He's saying, well, if, Paul, if you're saying that God is in control of human destiny, then how can God also hold us morally responsible for the choices that we make if God is ultimately in control? Because that's what Paul has been saying in Romans 9 up to this point. So, Paul, how can God hold us responsible? Now, let me, let me kind of let the cat out of the bag at the beginning. Paul is not going to answer this question in a way that we might want it to be answered to satisfy our human philosophical cravings. He doesn't go there. He, in fact, he seems sort of unencumbered by our, by our desire to connect every dot on this side of eternity. His, his answer actually is quite shocking, and he doubles down on the point that he's been making up to this point, that God will do what God wants to do. But we've got to do some work to understand that fully and in a biblical way. So before we get into Paul's answer, let's just remind ourselves of his argument up to this point in Romans 9, because this, this paragraph is in the context of the whole point of Romans 9, and it sits within the broader context of the point of all of Romans. Remember what he said in Romans up to this point is that we are all guilty before God, and the only way a person comes to be reconciled to God is through faith in Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, who has been put forward as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation. That's a wonderful biblical word that means that Jesus came as the perfect human, fully God, fully man, lived an obedient life, bore the wrath of God, obeyed God where every other Jew had disobeyed God. Jesus is the one true obedient Jew who obeys God and then lays down his perfect obedient life as a sacrifice on the cross to absorb the wrath of God, extinguish it, satisfy it, remove it, and turn it into grace, favor, and righteousness. That's what Romans 3 is saying, is that Jesus is our propitiation, our wrath-absorbing sacrifice that not only forgives us of our sins, but gives us his righteousness. And the way a person can apprehend or behold or receive the benefits of Jesus' propitiation is through faith. And even that faith that we have is a gift of grace that God gives a person when he determines to save them. So he uses this example of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, where even Abraham, if anybody that we look at in the Old Testament that might be an example of somebody that could be saved by works, it would be Abraham. And Paul labors in Romans chapter 4 to explain to us that even Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, even Abraham was saved not not by his good deeds, but by the faith that God gave him that then he believed in God's promises and the faith that God gave him then was credited to him as righteousness. And so God, the righteous God, can make sinners who have no righteousness in themselves righteous by removing the guilt for their unrighteousness and actually giving them a righteousness that they don't deserve. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus does on the cross. 
And that's where we get to Romans chapter 8 where he says, There is therefore no, now co- no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has done it and he will bring you all the way home. So even though you're saved and justified, if you're a believer in Jesus and there's no condemnation, you're still going to struggle in this life. Is there a Christian in here that still has a hard day? Come on now. Come on. Life, come on now. Life is hard. And Romans 8 explains that. And it says that even though there's no condemnation, he's going to bring you all the way home because there's no separation, because nothing that this world can throw at me, whether life or death or angels or tribulation, nothing in all creation can separate me from Christ Jesus in the Lord. So I'm going to be brought all the way home. I'm preaching better than you are letting on. Which brings us to Romans chapter 9, where he says, okay, if I've said all of these things about those who trust in Jesus, Roman Christians, I know what you may be thinking. If you're saying that I'm one of God's people because of Jesus, what about these Jews in the Old Testament that you said were your, your people, and you seem to have failed with them because many of them don't seem, in fact, the majority of them have not trusted in Jesus. So how can I trust God's word in Christ if God's word seems to have failed in the Old Testament? And Paul's point in Romans 9, it's a kind of thought bubble. It's a kind of aside in the message of Romans to show that he can be trusted. And even as we look back at the Old Testament, that's not an example of God somehow tripping and falling down and improving himself in the New Testament, but God can be trusted because Because, and this is the point of Romans 9, what does it mean to truly be a Jew? It doesn't mean that you are ethnically descended from Israel. That's the first part of Romans 9. He says, no, true Jews, those whom God saves, never came through human ethnicity or any sort of birthright. It always comes through God's doing. And so he says there's a physical Israel and there's a spiritual Israel. Physical Israel may have in majority, in mass, rejected Christ. But God has always had a spiritual Israel, a true people that he has brought about through his working, not through their birthright. And that true Israel, that spiritual Israel is those who are in Christ because the only Jew that is worthy to inherit all the promises that were promises to Israel in the Old Testament is not one of the patriarchs, not some great figure of the Old Testament, but Christ. Christ alone is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the one true covenant one who obeys all the covenant. And so all of the promises to Israel in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. He's the only one that can inherit all the promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And he's the only true Jew. He's Christ. And so then, all those that are by faith in Christ are true Israel. And so Paul is making the point, I haven't failed My people are people of faith who are in Christ. And he takes it even a step further. He says, how do those people that are my people by faith actually get into Christ, who is the one true Jew, who's the inheritor and the realization of all the Old Testament promises? Not by works, not by their effort, by sovereign choice. That's what he says in Romans 9, 6 through 13. And he uses two examples. He uses two sets of brothers. He uses Isaac and Ishmael. And he says that it's not going to come through human conniving, through Abraham and Sarah trying to help God out to fulfill his promise because Sarah's womb was dried up because she was in her 90s. Has any 90-year-old woman in here ever given birth? Anybody? Okay, it's, it's unlikely. In fact, let's go, let's go one step further and just say it's impossible. And they felt like they needed to help God out because God was letting the decades pass by without the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham and Sarah. And so they help him out by getting this mistress Hagar and having this child Ishmael. And God says, no, I'm not going to choose the son to be my, in my line that you've intervened with me, helping me out. I'm going to make a 90-year-old woman have a baby through the seed of a man who's a hunted A hundred years old. (laughs) Highlighting the fact that it's impossible 
by human standards to make God's promises good. Unless we misunderstand what God is saying in Isaac and Ishmael, he takes it one generation further and he presses into the point and he says, in case you misunderstood me in any way, there's these two twins born from the same mom and the same dad. And before they had done anything good or bad while they were in the womb, I chose Jacob over Esau, the younger over the older, against human order, so that... God's purpose of election might stand. And what is Paul saying? He's saying God has not failed because God will make for himself a people. And the way God does it is he doesn't rely on anything in the creature, in the human. But God will make a people for himself by his own sovereign choice and election. And he makes it happen by grace. So anybody that is part of true Israel, that is part, that is in Christ by faith, gets there not because they're Jewish, not because they were raised in a good Gentile home, let's bring it into our century, not because they grew up in a good gospel preaching church, although God may use all of those things as means, right? God doesn't just whack people over the head, God uses means. But the reason he brings anybody and puts them in Christ is simply because of his good pleasure to bring about his will in the life of a person so that he receives all the glory and the creature receives none. You're clapping now, but do you understand the objection? <laughs> if that's so, does human choice really matter? Friends, if you don't feel that dilemma, some of you are so convinced of this, you've got Calvin's Institutes tattooed on your thigh. <laughs> but if you don't feel the tension in the heart of this objection, I, I think your heart might be a little cold. And Paul brings up this objection. And he says in verse 20, look how he responds. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't say, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe you misunderstood me. You know, God kind of worked. It's a, it's a strange mystery. He doesn't hedge. He doubles down. Verse 20, but who are you, O man? He doesn't really answer the question. He just chides his objectioner for the attitude that he asks the question with. But who are you, O man, verse 20, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Paul busts the chops of his supposed inner objectioner. Now, I want, to, I want to take a, a brief moment here to say that I don't think, don't, don't take from this, that we cannot ask humble, honest questions of God. In fact, I think that's what we're trying to do today. The point is not that we can't wrestle with God and, and humbly come to him and ask him why. In fact, the Bible is full of examples of that. Think about, think about Mary, Jesus' Mother Mary, at the end of the first chapter of Luke, where Gabriel the angel comes to her and says, Behold, favor one, I bring you good news. You're going to have a baby. And she says, Okay, okay, great. One question. Um, how's this going to happen? Because, I mean, I know what needs to happen before that actually happens, and I ain't, that really, I ain't done that yet. <laughs> and, and Gabriel does not chide her, right? He receives the question, and she's a humble recipient of God's, of God's power in that moment. And we, I think about Psalm 13, where, where God actually writes into the Bible a question against him. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's Psalm 13, verse 1. That is a biblical plea that God writes into his Bible as part of the human experience. So in this text, in verse 20 of Romans 9, God is not saying that you need to zip your mouth, check your brain at the door, be emotionless, and just do what I say. He's not a tyrannical father. That's not what he's scolding here. He's scolding a kind of arrogance of humanity that looks at God and observes him as if he must follow our man-made philosophies and shouts back at him, why have you done this? 
And Paul, to that type of attitude, says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? And what is Paul doing there? He's quoting an Old Testament text in Isaiah. And he's, he's, he's giving Israel this picture of the potter and the clay, which was, a, which was a common Old Testament reference about God as the potter and Israel, in fact, all of creation as his clay. Listen to what God says to Israel, and Paul's quoting these verses in Isaiah. Look, listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. And this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the rebellious, disobedient Israel. God speaking here, he says, Isaiah 29, 16, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? So do you see what Paul, he's using that, that statement from God to Israel in the Old Testament, and he's saying, you're turning up things upside down. You're not the center of the universe, God is, and he can do whatever he wants. Isaiah 45, verse 9, he says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? In other words, God, why, why have you made me like this? I mean, you could have improved. You know, your work has no handles. You could have fashioned me in a different way. Now, let me pause here and say this. That I think clearly the context of Romans 9 is the eternal salvation of souls. And we cannot object to God who ultimately is the author and determiner of all things. But I think that there is another sort of next level down application of this, this sentiment, this truth in our own lives as believers, right? Who are we? This has many other applications. Okay, let's just say you, you're a believer in Jesus. God has made you his. He's made you, he's made you alive. He's given you a new heart. He's, he's, he's chosen you so that you could choose him. Now you're trusting in Jesus. But like many other Christians, in fact, like all of us, you often whine about things in your life. Man, why can't I be... Why can't I be 6'3", 220, and the quarterback for the Los Angeles Chargers? That's my life dream, by the way, if you don't know it. And if they called, I'd drop this thing in a second, and I'd go. <laughs> I'm just. Why, why can't I be as successful and as charismatic as that friend? Why can't my kids be as accomplished as my friend in my little mommy playgroup. Why can't, why, can't why can't I be like that person who I'm jealous of? What, what that ultimately is, is an, it's an expression of Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 45. God, you know, you've made me, but you, you made me with no handles. Sloppy craftsmanship, God. And do you see the arrogance of that? Right now, I mean, right now, this is a, this is a moment for somebody in this room. Right now, let's, <laughs> I need to do this too. <laughs> Re repent of your lack of satisfaction with God's sovereign providence in your life. Do it, do it right now. He made you like he made you for his good purposes. <laughs> come on, come on, young mothers, repent. I'm pleading with you, repent of your idolatry. And I'm sorry that you live in a world that objectifies women. And I'm, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that men are so sinful that we've created a culture where that's where you gain your worth. But don't, don't, let that, don't let that determine your attitude towards God, right? Come on. And, and men, don't, don't, don't be some insecure, egotistical guy that steps over people and is always making it all about himself. Don't, don't be that type of guy. Because behind all of that is a kind of lack of satisfaction with who God has determined you to be in your place. Come on, come on. Let's not say to the potter, you should have given me better handles. Back to the main point of the text. Let's keep going. Verse 21. 
Has the potter no right over the clay? Friends, this is where it gets, this is where it gets deep but clear. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What does he mean by honorable and dishonorable use? Does it mean that some of us are going to have a really good voice or some of us are going to be gifted at teaching or some of us can play the guitar or some of us can throw a football or some of us are really good with numbers or some of us are great on musical instruments and that's more honorable than the dishonorable ones of us who just kind of, you know, we just fill out the roster. No. I think clearly the context here is eternal destiny. That's the clear context of Romans 9. So when he says the potter has the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one for heaven and one for hell. I think that's the clear context of verse 21. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. I think verses 22 and 23 are, are the... It's just the, the fulcrum of this text of Romans chapter 9. In this sentence, Paul is expressing the utter, unconstrained freedom of God to do as He pleases. This doesn't mean that He doesn't use means to bring about His end. doesn't mean that human choices don't matter. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it is to say that the ultimate determining agency of all that happens, I think, in the world and in the eternal destiny of any individual soul ultimately rests on God. I think that's what verse 22 and 23 are saying. What does it mean when he says prepared for destruction in verse 22 and then prepared beforehand for glory in verse 23? Much has been made about these words prepared. Notice that in verse 22, he's speaking of people who ultimately are judged by God for their disobedience and do not, are separated from God forever. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And notice there he says that it's vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's a passive tense. It's, it's not super clear in verse 22 who's doing the preparing. Is it God that's doing the preparing? Or is it the person that's preparing themselves? That's a question that has been debated for, for, for many, many years by scholars. And then, but then notice in verse 23 how there's a, a different sort of construction of that thought. So verse 22 is about those who are separated from God forever in eternal damnation. And verse 23 is about those who are reconciled to him forever in Christ. And he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, those who are with Christ forever, recipients of grace, of salvation, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so, so much has been made that there's a kind of action, there's a, there's a positive aspect of God's electing grace where he's responsible for the preparing beforehand for those who are in him, but yet he's, he's not really entirely responsible, verse 22, for those who were prepared for destruction. And much has been made of that. I, I don't really know the answer to that, but I want you to see, I want you to see this, that behind it all, Regardless of what you think about what's going on in the mystery of those 
two words, God is in charge of everything and he could do whatever he wants to do. And for some, he has done it. And for some, whether he's the active agent in that or whether the person is the active agent in that, he hasn't done it. Do you see that? And that brings us to Ephesians 1 verse 11, which I think summarizes God's activity and his freeness. And he says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, friends, let's, let's just take note here before we ask two questions that I think these, these verses demand. Let's take note of how Paul answers the objection. He doesn't try and tidy it up. He doesn't answer it like human philosophy might want him to. Let's admit, even those of us that are most convinced of, the, of some particular theological position, that he leaves us with unresolved tensions. He leaves us with unresolved tensions, and he is okay with it. Are we? Paul is okay with not answering the question to our human satisfaction. Are we okay with hearing the answer in that form? Two questions. Is God in control of our individual eternal destiny? Well, those of you that have been tracking through Romans with us or just been around for a while, I think you know what I'm going to say to that. I think the answer is clearly yes. And yet, mankind is responsible. See, these are, these are the truths that seem to be held in tension in the Bible. God is in control. If he wasn't in control... Or if Paul weren't presenting this picture of God is in utter control, he wouldn't need to ask these supposed objections and answer them. If, if there wasn't that jagged edge that he supposes that we think is there with God, he, he wouldn't need to bring it up. And Paul, without hesitation, without in any way hedging, he says, yes, God, it depends not on him who runs or wills, but on God who has mercy. That's, that's a few verses before what we just read. Jonah cries out from the belly of the whale, salvation depends on the Lord. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's an unbroken chain there. But yet, the whole Bible is not just Romans 8 and 9. There's a Bible full of a picture of man being responsible for his State before God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Lamenting over Jerusalem before he begins the approach into Jerusalem in the Passion Week and to be crucified just days after this. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, this is Jesus speaking. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Romans 9, it depends not on him who wills, but on God who has mercy. Matthew 23, you were not willing. Those two things fit together in God's redemptive economy. Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen. The church is birthed. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, verse 23, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay? God, God knows what's going to happen, and in fact, he's actually brought it about. He's not just, he not just knows it. He's actually bringing it about. It's his definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
The cross is not like, oh my gosh, things have gone wrong. Oh, oh well, Jesus, you just, just, just love everybody. No, this is, he was the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, the scripture says. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, then what does he say? Comma, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's definite plan, man is responsible. You see that? And then we don't even have to go outside of Romans to see these two truths butting up against one another. Look at Romans 10, just one chapter over. Romans 10, I want you to see it with your own eyes. Come on, men, open your Bibles. Romans 10, verse 21, look at what Paul says just verses after what he says in Romans 9 about how it depends not on him who wills, but on God who has mercy. Verse 21, and we're going to get to this eventually. But of Israel, he says, Romans 10, 21, and he's quoting a verse in Isaiah 65 here, I think. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. How do you bring those two things together? God is holding out his hand saying, come, come, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest in Christ. Come, believe in the one true Jew, Jesus. Come, come, come. Depends not on him who wills, but on him who has mercy. How do you put those two things together? Well, remember, um, remember that show with Regis Philman, uh, the millionaire thing. How to? What was the, what was the show? Were you? Who wants to be a millionaire? Okay. Who wants to be biblically correct? Let's phone in some friends. The first friend that I'm going to phone in is Andrew Fuller. He was a particular Baptist pastor in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and he says this about this very tension. He says, a fleshly mind might ask, now wait a minute, this is a long quote, and every now and again I read these preaching books that say, don't read your people long quotes because they get bored and they don't have the attention span to follow it. Oh, come on. You can follow this. Just focus. Put down Instagram right now. Come on, man. Holy things are being talked about here. And you're scanning Instagram. Stop it. Focus. Come on. We can do this. I'm trying to be nice here. I'm, I'm, I'm scolding you. Okay, I haven't even read. And you're like getting mad at me. Come on. Let's do this. Andrew. Let me gather myself here for a second. All right. Andrew Fuller. A fleshly mind may ask, how can these things be? How can divine predestination accord with human agency and accountableness? But a truly humble Christian, finding both in his Bible, will believe both, though he may be unable to fully understand their consistency. And he will find in the one a motive to depend entirely upon God. And in the other, a caution against slothfulness and presumptuous neglect of duty. And thus, a Christian minister, if he view the doctrine in its proper connections, will find nothing in it to hinder the free use of warnings, invitations, and persuasions, either to, be, to the converted or the unconverted. Yet, he will not ground his hopes of success on the pliability of the human mind, but on the promised grace of God, who, while he prophesies to the dry bones as he is commanded, is known to inspire them with the breath of life. The second friend I'm going to phone is another English Baptist who lived about 50 to 75 years later. Maybe you've heard of him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. The fault is in our weak judgment. Amen to that. Well, we don't sit in authority over the, work of, uh, the word of God. It sits in authority over us. We're the fallible. It's the infallible one in this argument. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find that in another scripture, that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into 
upon one earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be in eternity. They are two lines that so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. (laughs) Come on, man. Uncle Chuck's at his finest right there. God uses means, friends. It depends not on him who wills, but on him who has mercy. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and you will find rest. Friends, God and this doctrine is not a science experiment to be observed. This is a truth to be humbled by and to be chastened by and to be encouraged by. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the only way you can call upon the name of the Lord is because you are dependent on God's mercy. And friends, his mercy is rich and free. Question two, and we end with this. And this is about as challenging as it gets. I think it's what verses 22 and 23 are pointing us to. Why did God create a world in which there is a hell? Because remember, remember the context of verses 22 and 23, saying, what if God, let's look at it again. Let's read verses 22 and 23 of our text again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, regardless of where you fall on the theological spectrum, I think everybody in this room, if they read their Bibles, clearly must confess that there is only, there are only two eternal destinies for every human soul. We do not believe in universalism. Universalism, the theological perspective, which is an error that believes that all people eventually get to heaven, is a lie. Heaven is a real place. And hell is a real place. And I think in verses 22 and 23, Paul is pointing us to that. and He's asserting God's freedom to be the ultimate, final determiner of the outcome and the eternal destiny of every soul. And the question, I think, is rightly asked in a humble way. I mean, God could have, he could have, why? Do you see the, do you see the question, why? Why, is, why did God even create Here's the, yes, here's the real question. Why did God even create a creation wherein he allowed the fall? That's the question. Almost like predestination. and all, oh, That's almost a kind of secondary question. Let's even back up one more fundamental question. Why did God even create a world and a humanity that he knew that he allowed would fall, that would cause this chaos that he would have to save a people from? Do you understand the objection, the question? Why? I think that's a valid question. And I think verses 22 and 23 point us in, that, in the direction of an answer. He says in verse 23, look at verse 23, in order, all of this, he created those prepared for destruction. Why? Here's Paul's reasoning in verse 23. See it in the text. In order to make known the riches of his glory, for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Friends, do you see what a radical God-centered view of the universe verse 23 gives us? He's saying that behind, the motivation behind God's love for you is his love for the display of his glory, which is actually the most loving thing he can do for the created. I'm going to phone one more friend, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. One of the greatest minds in in American church history, Jonathan Edwards, and he was a deep thinker, and he was hard to follow, hard to follow. Not the greatest writer, a great mind, not the greatest writer. We all have our strengths, don't we? The boy could wrap himself around an axle with a sentence. I I don't think he ever heard of periods. And he 
was thinking about this in a work that he called Concerning the Divine Decrees. Listen to this. Follow this. Follow this. This is critical. You can understand this. You can understand this. Come on, man. You can memorize cheat codes on some little game guy. You can get this. Edward says, Thus, it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority and dreadful greatness, justice and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as others do. In other words, he's saying that the glory of God's saving grace wouldn't be on display unless there was something to be saved from. Do you see that? And also the glory of his goodness, love and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. Do you see that? Edwards is, I'm not saying this answers all of our objections. I think Edwards is just pointing us in a direction that seems to be helpful. He's saying that God has determined that the display of his glory, the gap between those whom he saves and those whom he judges is meant to display his grace and that grace couldn't be displayed unless there was a gap to be displayed. He continues, if it were not right that God should decree and permit sin and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness and hatred of sin or in showing any preference in his providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. How much happiness soever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired and the sense of it not so great. Do you see that? One more paragraph. So evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world. Because, listen to this. Oh, I want to I think about this sentence. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of him be imperfect... The happiness of the creature must be proportionally imperfect. In other words, if the full display of all of God's character were not on display in salvation through judgment, then we wouldn't behold God fully as he is and we would have a less than experience of God. Oh, the depth and the riches of the mercy of God. His ways are inscrutable and his judgments past finding out. And friends, this glory comes through judgment. It comes through judgment. And where do we see this most clearly? We see it on the cross. So friends, if you're a Christian in here, don't think of this as some abstract theological argument Oh, wow, God must, God must judge the ungodly to deepen my enjoyment of him. Well, yeah, yeah, okay. Friends, yes, for the display of his glory, God has created a world that's fallen so that he could save you from it, along with those from every tribe and tongue and nation, a whole host which cannot be numbered. Yes. But friends, what about what should have been your judgment? Where does, that, where does that display God's glory? Your judgment doesn't just get erased away. It's not just an etch-a-sketch that God shakes and all of a sudden all of the mess-ups that you've committed in your life are somehow gone. And I'm sorry for these people who didn't get chosen. What does God do with your judgment? Friends, he pours it out on his son on the cross. That's the very heart of the Christian message is that all of us should be judged. And God, for those whom he chooses, for those whom he makes alive, he doesn't just erase their culpability and act like it didn't happen. He pours it out on his son. And Isaiah 53 says that it pleased God the Father to crush the son who alone could absorb all of the judgment for all of his people. And so when we look at God's judgment and the riches of his glory, we don't just see it negatively in those whom God does not choose. We see it positively in our life because all of God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus for me and the riches of his glory have been expressed through Christ on the cross. And it was real. 
God the Son who created the world cries out on the cross, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain of the Son separated from the Father because of our sin, accomplishing the will of the Father, brings about the salvation of all those whom he has made his. That, (laughs) come on, man. Fight sin with that. Fight, fight sin with that. Come on, come on. Stay in a tough marriage with that. Stay in it because, because it's worth it, because there's something bigger going on in your life. Come on. To display, you're here to display the riches of his glory, Bible Belt Christian. You're not just here to have some theoretical doctrinal ascent. You're here to be a recipient of his grace and to live in accord with that grace. That's called sanctification. So that your life would be a display. Come on, man. Come on. This is so beautiful. This is the very, the very apex of God's glory in, in salvation through Christ. And see it and behold it and make it yours and fight sin with it and witness to unbelievers with it and lean forward into eternity with it because he will bring his people safely home. Let's pray. Lord, use, use this text and my feeble words to do what only you can do. I pray. Thank you for the kindness this, this people that I love so much and, and listening and do your work and have your way. May, may anybody within the sound of my ears who came in not knowing Jesus, may, Lord, save them, save them. You, you're, you're calling, you're holding out your hand to them right now. We know their only hope is you, but let them realize that and give them a new heart so that they can believe. Lord, please, Please save anybody in this room who doesn't, who doesn't know Jesus. And awake from slothfulness those of us who do. For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.